Welcome to Northern Exposure, the podcast that we hope will help Canadian medical students explore their potential future careers as Canadian physicians. We're your hosts. I'm Ann Keller. And I'm Hannah Levy. Our guest today is Dr. May Senae. Dr. Senae is a urogynecologist in Edmonton, Alberta. She was a member of the inaugural McMaster Niagara Regional Campus MD class and went on to complete her obstetrics and gynecology residency at McMaster as well. She then completed a fellowship in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery in Vancouver at the University of British Columbia and earned a master's degree in health professionals education from McMaster. Currently, she is a clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Alberta, and her recent clinical practice includes a full-time academic urogynecology practice in Edmonton, emergency on-call urogynecology coverage, gynecology oncology on-call coverage, and OB labor and delivery shifts. She also works as an OBGYN locum in BC and Alberta. Welcome, Dr. Senae. Thanks for having me. We like to give a bit of a roadmap for the conversation, just so you know where we're headed. We've split our interview into three parts. The first is about you and your specialty. The second is the story of how you landed where you are. And then finally, we'll dig into the nitty gritty details of what you do on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. Sounds good. Wonderful. One of the reasons that we really wanted to start this podcast is because we wanted to get a feel for what specialties are really like. So to that end, can you give us an elevator pitch or in other words, a brief sales pitch for your job? Sure. My job as a urogynecologist is that I get to do everything. So I get to help women in all phases of their life and especially with a part of the body that a lot of women are very embarrassed to talk about. And so it creates a safe space to talk about the challenges of aging and the challenges of childbirth and the challenges of puberty and every stage of life uh, where women don't get a chance to really sit down with someone and talk it through and learn about how to make things better. So that's why I love urogynecology. So how do you think your personality complements your job? Probably the instant gratification sort of personality is mine. (laughs) So I I feel like we we call it a magician instead of magician because we make the vaginal (laughs) prolapse. It's there one moment and it's not the next. So it's very satisfying to have women who are really suffering and not able to do their day-to-day because they have this prolapse coming outside of their body. It's very scary, very uncomfortable. And then you do your surgery and then they're all better. So it's gratifying and it's it's just one operation usually that will do it. That does sound wonderful. I'm definitely an instant gratification type of person. Uh, So you've piqued my interest. (laughs) But sort of looking at the other side, maybe the more negative perceptions, we found a study of UK medical students published in 2014 that outlined perceptions of obstetrics and gynecology. And while they included descriptors like rewarding and interesting, which I'm sure you would agree with, there are also concerns about a lack of work-life balance, risk of litigation, and difficulty for men to be accepted by patients in the field. Recognizing that this was a UK study that happened more than a decade ago, do you think that these concerns generalize to OBGYN practice in Canada today? There are definitely parts that I think rings true. And in a moment when you've done that 24-hour shift, that's been really rough. um, And you say, what is the specialty? Nothing makes sense. The fetal heart rate and the gases don't correlate. Our tools that we have don't make any sense and you're just burnt out. Yes, you might think that that work-life balance is definitely not being achieved. But overall, I would say that 
people go into the specialty for the same reason they stay in it. And I think that that rewarding part really does outweigh the rest. Makes sense. We have heard potentially an overgeneralization that urogynecology's sort of patient population is largely elderly ladies with urinary incontinence. What are your thoughts on that statement? Well, my initial statement in response would be, so what? Like, yes, elderly women are our mothers and grandmothers. And so I would hope that they would feel comfortable coming and talking about the fact that they don't want to leave the house because they smell like pee or whatever the concern is. It is definitely more than that. Urogyne is mostly prolapse, incontinence, fistula, fecal incontinence. We have a lot of chronic pain, a lot of young women with chronic pain, dyspruenia, pain with intercourse. When I was in med school and residency, I never even knew what a hypertonic pelvic floor was and what pelvic floor physiotherapy was and how beneficial it is and how women don't understand that sometimes they, some people hold their stress in their shoulders, but a lot of women hold it, they're just holding a Kegel all the time. And so then that causes pain, uh, pain with walking, pain with sex, pain with all sorts of things. So the population is not just elderly women with incontinence, but again, if it were, I would say, so what? That's a great answer. I think there are certain specialties where that bread and butter patient population is the generalization of that field. But But they bring you cookies and they're really nice. So (laughs) (laughs) So I don't see a problem with that. I'm grateful. So grateful. (laughs) Go into Eurogyne if you want baked cookies from elderly ladies. All right. We should should bring that to the top for our uh, sales pitch. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So moving on to the second portion of our interview, we would love for you to tell us the story of how you got to where you are. So choices that you made in your education, decisions between different paths, just the story. Sure. Uh, It's not a glamorous story. I'm sure it's shared by many others. I guess it started, you know, in university. I was studying biology and French, and I, I knew that I really liked stories and I really liked people. And I thought, well, the only two careers I can think of would be medicine or maybe journalism. And then from there, medicine intrigued me. And in med school, I definitely wanted OB-GYN from the beginning. It was my first rotation and I knew I really liked it. And ever since uh, that moment, um, people started to say, you're never going to get any sleep. You're never going to have kids. You're never going to have a good life. You're going to be tired all the time. That's a very, very bad decision. So after that rotation, I actually did no electives in OB-GYN. I, I listened to that. I actually started down a path of trying to choose internal medicine. So I did all my electives in internal. I applied for CARMS to internal. So that was what I thought I wanted because I that's the real medicine. Like that is just so cool which I still find to be the case, but I just couldn't let go of the surgical part. And so um, last minute and two weeks before CARMS, just scrambling together, applying to OB-GYN, it was definitely not the usual route in that regard, <laughs> uh, but it worked out. And I always thought, okay, it's because I love medicine and I love surgery. And this is a combination of both. I remember sitting in fourth year in residency thinking, no, this is neither. This is not medicine and it's not surgery. This is some sort of mix of its own making and creation that I don't think anyone outside of this world fully understands. So I I love it. And I definitely am glad I chose it, but it was not what I thought it would be. It is really hard. 
I have such respect for OB-GYNs who continue in this career for their entire career doing this ridiculous call into their 60s and 70s because I'm tired and I'm in my 30s. And so that might be part of why I chose Eurogyne because it's more of a normal schedule. And so that I knew that I'd have those extra skills that I could do OB when I wanted and not when I didn't want to. And that's why I've kind of created this mixture of a career that is just perfect for me where I get to do exactly what I want. So what was it about OB-GYN that way back in clerkship, do you know what it was that made you so attracted to it? It's embarrassing. Yes, yes. The reason that I'm so attracted to it, you know, the real answer should be like, I love babies, which is actually not true because you don't do anything with babies. (laughs) It's with mom. Or I really like women's health, which is true. I definitely like the social aspect of it. It's one of, I think, the only specialties that you can use your social advocacy hat and really work for the status of women, which I do try to do. But the the truth was that it was almost because everyone was afraid of pregnant women (laughs) when I was doing internal rotations. Like pregnancy was this thing that was like, she's pregnant. Oh, no. What are we going to do? We don't know anything about this. And I was like, I never want to be that person. I want to know everything about it. And I want to not be scared by it. There's this little meme going around of the ICU doc that if they have a patient in AFib, their heart rate's like 60. If if their patient's in VFib, it's like 70. If their patient's asystolic, they're like, you know, they're not so bad, but their patient's pregnant, 140. (laughs) What are they going to do? So I I just don't want to feel like I'm not comfortable with this very important part of physiology. But then it grew to way beyond that. And were there any other factors other than the content of the specialty that you considered when choosing OB? I think I did consider the fact that I was very lucky and that I was very mobile. I could try to do residency or fellowship wherever I wanted. Some people do have very serious commitments to families and can't consider moving or have to consider other aspects of their lives. But I did have the whole world open to me. So I thought, okay, I'll take advantage of that and do a specialty that might be a little bit more rigorous because I am fortunate enough to not have dependents and that sort of thing. So that did help, I think. I did touch on the fact that there's so many facets to OB-GYN, especially when it comes to advocacy that I was super interested in. So whether it's pap smear campaigns and just young women not knowing about their bodies going to high schools and that sort of thing that you feel like, okay, if I'm an expert in women's health, then I actually can go to these spaces with that hat on and have something to say and people want you there and want to listen to you and ask questions. So that was something that was also attractive. I want to take you back to the two weeks before CARMS. Oh, right. Oh, I remember exactly where I was sitting. Yeah. Walk us through the thought process because that's a very significant change and obviously one that has long-standing effects. So what was the reasoning? So I remember I was really trying to imagine myself as an internist. It's like, okay, so here I am in internal medicine residency. Great. And then I couldn't picture what I would do after. I had no concept of what my day-to-day would be like, what my clinic, or would I do a what subspecialty. I just couldn't think beyond that, and that really bothered me. But with OB Guide, I just I saw this world. You know, you hear MSF saying, "We don't care if you." can only come for a few weeks. We need OB-GYNs. This is a need. Or same thing here in Canada. You know, you hear about job prospects down the road and you worry a little bit about where can I get a job? I'm like, oh, I can go anywhere with OB-GYN and tweak it however I like. Again, 
I felt like I wasn't giving up medicine and I wasn't giving up surgery. So that was a factor. But the faculty were so wonderful. In those two weeks, they like scrambled together. I got a letter from my um, OB-GYN rotation supervisor, but also the general surgeon and a family doctor. I didn't ask an internist for that letter. <laughs> and it all kind of came together, but it was definitely the right choice. Is there anything that you wish you had known before making that decision or any advice you have for students currently making the decision of which specialty to choose? I try to be really open throughout clerkship. And I think that is correct. Like you do every rotation as though you're going to do that specialty. It just makes the experience so much better. But I suppose if you really do know which which specialty you love, don't try to let other people tell you it's too hard or you can't do it. Because at the end of the day, you'll be left two weeks before CARMS and be like, am I doing with my life? This is the wrong thing. <laughs> so if you if you know, just work on it and maybe do some electives in that. And don't just listen to the negative that other people say, because I think that love for the specialty is what will get you through the hard times. And if you're always thinking like, oh, this is the wrong choice. Something that one of the uh, preceptors I had in Niagara told me actually, which I also think is true, is that he said there is no wrong choice. And that was a different way to think about it. We're in medicine for a reason. We all like it. We all get up in the morning and enjoy what we do. So no matter what we choose, it will be okay. So that was also a different way of looking at it so that I thought, okay, if I don't get it until we go in, that's fine. I will still be happy, but you're just a little happier. So did you dual apply to internal and ob I sure did. <laughs> I did interviews for both. And it worked out? Yeah. Okay. So the third part is the nitty gritty details. And I want to start off by asking you, can you give us a good definition of how you define urogyne? So urogynecology is the term that gynecologists use to describe the specialty. Female urology is the term that urologists use to describe the specialty. The true name for the specialty is female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, FPMRS. So that's exactly what it is. So it's female pelvic medicine. So we do the medicine related to the bladder, bowel, and pelvic organs. So whether that's anticholinergics for overactive bladder or pain for chronic pelvic pain, but also the surgery part. And mostly it's reconstructive, but we do other surgeries as well. Transgender care is falling under the umbrella of FPMRS, which is excellent and I think a big need, especially here in Edmonton. Our clinic now is the first gender clinic that is doing pre and post-op care. And hopefully we will go into offering bottom surgery, especially for trans women. So pelvic reconstruction is what urogyne is and everything that sort of comes out of that. That's helpful. If we were to follow you around for, say, a week, can you take us through what you would be doing and we would be watching in terms of your hours and work and types of patients you see and, and just what the day-to-day looks like for a week? Sure. Okay. So I guess on Monday morning, I would head to clinic for Eurogyne at around eight would be the first patient. And I've gotten texts from the fellow and the residents about how our inpatients have been doing that they've already rounded on. They'll go to the OR. I'll have my clinic day. The clinic will include consultations, but also follow-ups for women who have been trying a whole bunch of different anticholinergic medications and beta-3 agonists for their overactive bladder, but they're still super bothered by it. So we're going to consult about um, moving on to trying Botox, for example, 
counseling around that, seeing women whose prolapse, their pessary is not working anymore. So we're going to talk about the different surgical options, getting into the controversies about mesh versus no mesh, litigations in the States, how does that apply to them? So those sort of conversations, having the 94-year-old woman come with her daughter and trying to decide if we're going to close her vagina with a colpoclasis because there's no other options available. Is she too frail? Do a MOCA, do an MMSE, do a frailty score, talk to the geriatrics on call maybe have lunch probably not and then carry on (laughs) until about three then sit in front of the computer for two hours and do all the paperwork and all the OR bookings and realize that actually instead of lunch you probably did run upstairs and see your patients (laughs) uh, when you had like a med student or a resident seeing one consult you go and see those other patients upstairs just to check in on them at the end of the day do tuck-in rounds for any patient that's still there if you're going to discharge them at the end of the day make sure that they've learned how to do their self-catheterization if they still can't pee. Okay, so that was Monday. I won't go into so much detail for the other days. <laughs> no, it's honestly it's so helpful. Okay, so I should say, so on Monday night, I probably have a meeting. I always have a meeting at the end of the day. So whether it's a research meeting, I think I'm supervising six R2s right now. So we're either reviewing like where we are at in terms of the REB or the manuscript, checking in like what's going on with setting up the project. Uh, so probably an hour research meeting at the end of the day or that meeting could be more like a society meeting so the Canadian Society for Pelvic Medicine is the new urogynecology Canadian-wide society and it's very new and in its infancy so we're organizing our first meeting so working on that so yeah say a meeting or two so done by seven probably it's home time Next day, say it's an OR day. So ORs strictly start at 7.45. So before then, you're you're rounding. 7.45, I meet the patient and their family in the holding area, make sure I have the family's information so I can call them after. The residents have already, and the medical students have seen the patient, been working on orders and a plan for pain afterwards. We do our surgery. The surgery is typically, if it's the full pelvic floor reconstruction, meaning usually... A classic would be a vaginal hysterectomy, anterior and posterior repair, bilateral uterosacral ligament suspension, bilateral salpingectomy to prevent ovarian cancer, and then say a TVT, which is a retropubic sling for incontinence or another incontinence procedure. We're looking at a four-hour surgery. So that would will take up, say, from 8 to 12, 12.30 with the anesthetic and the recovery. And then you have maybe a smaller case at the end of the day, like a colpoclysis. So that's where we have the complete procedentia where the entire organ system from the pelvis has come out. And so that might take a couple of hours. And then we might do some Botox injections for pain into the pelvic floor. And then that's the OR day. And then at the end of the day, we'll go and round on the first case of the day, see how she's doing, talk to her family, and then go do a bit of billing, paperwork, and maybe a meeting, and then head out around six or so. So clinic day and OR day, and then if I have a research day or an admin day, I'm on a UTI prevention committee meeting, so that's with different specialties and different disciplines, so that might happen at, say, nine. I'm also the Surgical Foundations Program Director at our site, so the PGY1s and 2s have their academic half day in the morning. The rest of the OB-GYNs have it on Wednesday afternoon, so I'm also involved with the program in the afternoon, like on that education side. So, you know, whether I'm checking in at all with the academic activities that are happening that day, working on answering questions, vacation requests, all sorts of things like that. 
and then say Thursday is another clinic day. And then what else do I do? Probably another OR day. That would be nice. Sometimes we assist each other. So I might assist another urogyny. So it's very collegial and very fun because I don't have all the responsibility, but I get to be in the OR. And then finally, I usually do my OB on weekends. So like a couple weekends a month, I'll go to a small town, uh, say a few hours away and cover call Friday to Sunday. And it's really nice. So if I go to BC, I'm in the mountains, which that was pre-COVID. I get to fly there. It's like a little adventure. And if it's close by, it's also great because it's just a quick drive and then get to meet people from somewhere different. And I feel like that pace as a med student where you're constantly on a new rotation, like new things. How does this computer system work? How does everything work? I've kind of kept that up. So I go to new <laughs> hospitals and like, oh, how does everything work here? But the amazing thing is that no matter where you go, the cast of characters are always the same. Medicine is the same everywhere, really. It's very subtle differences. So it's really nice to be able to transplant anywhere and have a really great weekend. That would be my week. So the weekend OB work, is that locum work? Yeah, I was doing some here in the city before COVID, but then after COVID, that was the only essential work. So it became kind of coveted and not everyone would get to do as many OB calls. You may have heard there's some political stuff going on in Alberta for doctors. And so um, the rural communities are being hit hard and do have more need. So it's kind of nice because you get treated really special when you go out there. Everyone looks <laughs> so excited that you're there. It's really nice. You have already mentioned your love of the OR, but what's an aspect of your job that makes you really excited to go to work most days? I think the fact that Eurogyne or FPMRS is such a new specialty is really exciting because there's so much we don't know. When you compare to, say, internal medicine, the studies are sparse. So literally any question that you have, like, oh, why is this happening to this patient? There's not that much research on it. And so it is so interesting to be at the cusp of all these new discoveries and participate in the research, but also see how women do with the changes. The whole mesh thing was because people are so desperate to help women who are having this recurrent prolapse, but it was the wrong answer. And so we're still learning so much because it's so niche. There's a handful of surgeries that we do to just try to get better at those and like really know that you're at the top of your field. And it's really something that not too many people can do. It just feels like you want to keep pushing yourself to push that envelope to take this specialty into a new dimension. Is there a specific clinical encounter or experience in your field that has stuck with you as being particularly poignant? It happens all the time. Yesterday, a woman cried and said, I love you, which I wasn't sure if I'm allowed to say I love you back to a patient. <laughs> because she said, I changed her life because she doesn't pee her pants all the time. She said that every time she would go grocery shopping, she had to take an extra pair of pants with her. No matter where, she, she just would try not to go out. But now she feels like she has her life back. And that is not uncommon. So that's really great to be a part of. Was there a particular moment at some point in your career where you thought, aha, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing? Or has it been more of a general sense of satisfaction throughout? A probably general sense of satisfaction. I suppose what we all really need to admit here is that I was part of the inaugural class of Niagara. And um, the route I took, I've really only been in practice for over a year. So that is almost seven years after med school. 
So that's not typical. So when you say, oh, this overall gratification over my career, I feel like, oh, my career has only been a year compared to someone <laughs> who, you know, did family medicine and have had a very fulfilling and long career since. But the training and all those moments have definitely overall been gratifying meeting people from all sorts of specialties like when you do your fellowship and you do your colorectal portion when you do your chronic pain when you do your geriatrics rotation you do get to work with so many different teams which you don't really get to do when you're a staff as much anymore so all those experiences meeting other specialties was very gratifying and you can see how much patient benefits from having that multidisciplinary approach like right now in our clinic we i should say we have a combined clinic so we'll have a clinic where i'll go in with the colorectal surgeon for say a woman with fecal incontinence or i'll go in and see a woman with the urologist for some more advanced urologic concerns so that is always gratifying too that oh we can actually make this happen and all the barriers that make it more difficult and oh but we won't get paid but we won't do this oh i forgot to tell you a big part of my week that i really enjoy we started this mindfulness class for chronic pelvic pain and it's been going really well and that's another thing that has been very gratifying because we just had our six month check-in for the first group and to see the improvement in their pain is just so satisfying so i Maybe I would pick that. Those women who come back and be like, wow, I've been able to have sex with my husband um, for the first time in 10 years because of this program. So yes, there are barriers. And yes, you know, you have to get the hospital to agree to this, that and the other. But what I was taught was just do it and ask for forgiveness later. And that's what we did. And it worked. So you (laughs) got to do what you're trained to do and it'll work out. I'm going to tuck that one away. (laughs) Future advice. So if we were to read about your specialty or job, what is something that you would want us to know that we wouldn't necessarily see if we were reading about it on paper or online? So when I was in residency, I used to think that urogynecology was just prolapse and incontinence. And as I've gone through the training and now practicing, I see that it's really good to have that niche. It includes the bowels as well but then you can decide how far you want to take it. So we'll have, say, in our clinic of six urogynecologists, you can go in whatever direction you like. So we have the person who is the main person for the transgender care. We have the person who's the main person for mesh excision, mesh complications. We have the main person who likes to do more of the chronic pelvic pain, uh, medical, but also psychosocial sort of practice. We have the person who's very interested in sacral nerve stimulation. So they went to do extra training outside of our center and can um, do the implants and do that care for women with refractory overactive bladder, refractory fecal incontinence, pelvic pain. So everyone has, oh, and one person is very, very heavily involved in medical education. So you can really take the specialty in any direction you want, even though it seems like it's very limited. That's not the case. You can get very busy very quickly. That's good to know. And it's actually a pretty common theme of people that we speak to is that no matter how specialized and niche you think a field is, there is always more specialization that can be done. (laughs) And you can, you can pick whatever it is that brings you the most joy that you are the most interested in. Yes. So like I did um, some ultrasound work for looking for mesh or for endoanal ultrasound. We've been having these webinar conferences 
there is a whole world of that, of ultrasound just for the pelvic floor, for the muscles. Like, I never had heard of that. And you can actually see the different muscles of the levators, and it's very, very specialized. So you can definitely go wherever you like with it, and it crosses over with so many other specialties. In the similar vein of nothing is ever the same anywhere, you clearly practice in an academic tertiary setting, and then also you do your locums, sometimes rural or community-based. How do those kinds of practice settings differ, and what do you enjoy about each of them? Okay, this is super important. So there's two different kind of (laughs) practice settings. One is the question as to why I came to Western Canada, which I'll tell you the secret. And then the other one is the rural versus urban. So Western Canada is probably 10 to 15 years ahead in Eurogyne than Eastern Canada. That is a generalization because there are people who practice in Eastern Canada who have been trained formally in a fellowship, but the majority have not. And that's okay because there's a need, but it also was like I couldn't not come work in Edmonton because I think Edmonton and maybe Calgary have the best urogynecology set up in the country. So what it is, it's it's a group of urogynecologists who, except for me, do only urogynecology or mainly urogynecology. And we also have nurse continence advisors. So these are RNs who do extra training to do pessary care, pessary fittings, uh, urodynamics, counseling on fluid intake and dietary changes. We have pelvic floor physiotherapies, which are covered by the Alberta Healthcare Plan for women, which is critical to what I do because many women that I see will be cured with physio and don't need surgery. Whereas I'm afraid in Eastern Canada, the only option that will be covered is surgery. So they'll go to surgery instead. Um, We have a dietitian, we have an exercise physiologist, we have uh, psychology support. The team is really what makes it. And that is why I think it's so excellent to be part of that team and work there. We also have nurse practitioners, whereas obviously in rural settings for sure, but also in Eastern Canada, it ends up being siloed practice. So here you are, the lone OB-GYN who is either a urogynecologist or not, and you're going to see a woman in front of you with advanced prolapse and incontinence, and you are going to do the pest refitting. You are going to tell them to go find a physiotherapist and pay out of pocket. You're going to have no one else to kind of run things by when their prolapse is like their third time needing surgery. So it ends up being really hard, I think, to practice on your own. So that's why I chose to come to Edmonton. People in the country, though, they know that they have chosen to live somewhere where it'll be harder to access care. And that's okay. So they're willing to travel if they need to, but they're also very happy when a visiting. So when I go to, say, Cranbrook in BC, they'll set up a day for me to see urogyne patients. And then the next time I'm there, we'll do those surgeries together with the local OB-GYNs, who, by the way, are really excellent surgeons and don't need me really, but they are also collegial and like to work together. But they, they're, they're self-taught and they're great. So I'm just like, okay, let's, let's have fun. This is good. And the patient feels good that they have that special care and not have to go hours and hours away for it. And I find that, yeah, in small smaller towns, communities, patients are just so grateful if they have that access because they know that they've chosen to live somewhere that that's limited. So you do research. It didn't come up in your sort of Monday to Friday other than the meetings component. Yes. You fit in research somehow. Can yes. you talk to us about that? Sure. I was taught that it's good to have a research 
program. So, you know, I came in to residency and in my head had designed this RCT that would have needed thousands of women. And okay, relax, that's not feasible. What you do <laughs> is you start with a literature review or a chart review and you build this program of research. So if there's an area that you're interested in, you can build on your own research and move it forward to make it to that RCT or to that big project that you want to, the question that you want to answer. I was really one of these people who was like, I don't care about research. I hate research. It's research for the sake of research. I don't want to do research when I was like in med school. I still did it because I had found wonderful mentors and it was actually kind of fun, but I found it very hard and I found that you have to be very, very smart to think of good research questions. So having these mentors along the way has been critical for me. But now when I'm in the other role where I'm mentoring people, I realize a couple of things like you have to have a question that you love and you actually care about the answer. Otherwise, you're not going to put the time in because it is hard. And then you can build on your research. So my area that I'm fascinated by is urogynecology surgeries. Women end up having bladder infections like 20% of the time compared to regular gynae surgeries is like 2%. And no matter what we do, we can't get that number down. Like women are going to the ER. That's just a big burden. They're uncomfortable after surgery. We can't seem to bump that UTI rate down. So that's my research program that I'm trying to develop. And so there's been multifacets to that. But along the way, there's been other projects too and collaborating with uh, other colleagues who have their research programs. And there's a lot of crossover. When you walked us through your typical week, it seems yes. like your life is pretty jam-packed. Oh, yeah. How do, you, how do you kind of fit your research in with your clinical work with not living your entire life at a hospital? Right. So I actually haven't figured that out. <laughs> Let's do this again in 10 years when maybe I figured it out by then, five years, hopefully. So it is troublesome when you're a student and no one really talks about how oh, wait, if you become a fee-for-service physician, which I am, research is volunteer work because no one's paying you to do that. So for me, because I am out of school finally and have all this debt, it's very hard for me to give up a day of the week to do research when I know I could be seeing patients and billing. So I feel like a lot of times we don't talk about money with students and no one talked to me about it. But that's the reality where uh, as a fellow, same thing like my salary for my fellowship, because it's a non-accredited fellowship, it's not a Royal College fellowship, urogynecology. So during the week, it would be hard to take me away from doing clinical things to do research. So I ended up doing a lot of my research on weekends and evenings. And unfortunately, I've kept that up. But it has been a personal choice because I, I, I want to get down my debt and I just want to do this for the first couple of years out of school. But long term, the idea is that you negotiate with the university, you get a better clinical appointment, you get protected time, you can actually do it during the day, that sort of thing. And then I think that will make it more productive and also more sustainable. I don't know how a lot of this works. This is helpful. Are universities generally fairly receptive to negotiating to help pay part of your salary for research? Or is that a difficult conversation or to be determined because you haven't quite reached that? Well, no, it's an ongoing conversation. I'd say that every university would love to do that. I mean, that is what universities are for. That's the mandate is to bring in grant money, have people discover things, you know, the university gets put on the map for that. Uh, and then the cycle continues, you get more funding from grants, and then you become known as a very good research institution in this area. So I think universities really do like that idea. But in reality, funding is limited, it's constantly a, a struggle. So it's that we're all competing for those same resources. And so 
it's funny that you kind of have to prove that you're publishing and you're doing good work in order to get that protected time, but you need that protected time to get all those things. So that's the challenge. Thank you for sharing. We really, really appreciate the honesty. So I'm going to take you back a little bit to you mentioned that your gynecology is a bit more lifestyle friendly than OBGYN without a fellowship or subspecialization. Can you comment a bit about what OBGYN in general looks like in terms of life schedule to the best of your knowledge? Oh, sure. OB-GYN you can make it so that it's a great balance. It's just the hours. So that you're just doing a lot of nights. So that's the only thing that I say would mess you up. I was taught OB-GYN and anesthesia and probably ER are the ones that it's not just your residency that you're up all night because that's pretty much every residency. But then you have to remember, oh, these three specialties probably for the rest of your career, that's just going to be the cycle and that's going to, you have to just be okay with that. I know many OB-GYNs who have a wonderful work-life balance, but they've had to work at it especially when they decide which community to work in. For example, the ones that I've been doing some coverage on weekends, it's because in one town, that OB-GYN is the only OB-GYN. When he signed on, there were two others. One, unfortunately, passed away, and the other one, I think, retired. So now he's the only one. So he's on call 24-7. Like, this is not sustainable. You don't always get called, but you always could get called. So it also depends when you decide where you're going to work. If there's really only three of you you still are going to be what one in three. So you're making a commitment that may set you up for the long haul being more challenging, but also very rewarding. So I'd say OB-GYNs have it difficult with the nights, but not necessarily in finding the overall work-life balance. That's helpful. Our last question, any final words of wisdom or advice for students who are considering a career like yours? Do it. It's the best. (laughs) You honestly can do anything with it. And there's just so much learning that's continuing to come out of it. And you can be part of all of it, building this new society, this national program, making it an accredited fellowship. We're actually discovering new surgeries. Like not every specialty is still doing that. I think that's pretty cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing and for your honesty and for being here with us. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. This is excellent. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Northern Exposure. To suggest a guest, send us feedback, or learn more, check out our website, northernexposurepodcast.ca. We are both students at McMaster's Michael G. DeGroote School of Medicine, but this podcast is in no way affiliated with the school or program and all views expressed are ours alone. Views expressed by guests on our show are personal opinions and should not be considered representative of any hospital, university, or other organization with which they may be affiliated. Music composed by David Rubel and performed by the David Rubel Quintet.